Time goes by fast, doesn't it, parents? I was just sitting there looking at those pictures thinking to myself, we have two little guys at home and it won't be too long until we're sitting here. It just, man, it just goes by so fast. And so we are, uh, we are really, really thankful and excited uh, to celebrate these graduates this year. This is always a very special day uh, in, the, in the year uh, for not only Hillcrest, for our student ministry as we honor these graduates it's a really fun class, and we're going to talk about them a whole lot this morning. Um, but let me share some kind of interesting facts about this class, about all uh, class of 2018 graduates for you guys that will be going to uh, other graduations and you want to, you know, maybe uh, equip you to be able to uh, have some conversations with you. I'm going to share with you a few fun facts about the class of 2018 or as I've been reading through this list, the, uh, what I'm now calling the, geez, I'm getting old list, okay? So here we go. Now, this is not true for every graduate, but it, it's, it's true for most of them. When this class was born, uh, the iPod was about to take the music world by storm. It wasn't even out yet, right? When this class was born, Wilson was Tom Hanks' best friend um, from the movie Castaway. Now, that's what I call music. Volume 4 had just been released. In comparison, now that's what I, called, that's what I call music. Volume 66 has just been released. Um, for all of us This Is Us fans, our sweet Rebecca Pearson actually had a song on that. Now, that's what I call music. Volume 4, Candy by Mandy Moore. It was track number four. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> Gas Prices. Approximately 79 cents a gallon. This class, uh, most of them have never experienced the crippling fear that comes with picking a top eight on MySpace. <laughs> Roll down your window and don't touch that dial has no meaning to these guys. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? For all of us wrestling fans, uh, the class of 2018 never knew the WWF. They've only known the WWE. There was one wrestling fan in the first service, so that guy, <laughs> he laughed at that one. It was great. Um, this class has never experienced the frustration of trying to record your favorite song from the radio and then having the DJ come on and interrupt and ruin the whole thing, right? <laughs> Press pound on the phone means nothing to these guys. It's now referred to as hit hashtag. And... Last but not least, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC have actually been bands longer than this class have been alive. <laughs> wow. Hope that makes you feel super old this morning. Listen, in all seriousness, this Hillcrest class of 2018, they are a super, super special uh, group of young adults. They are extremely, extremely gifted. They are very intelligent, and they are a, a wonderful group that I am personally thankful that I've had the privilege of, of getting to know. But this morning, I want to share with you some very specific things about this class that myself and their Connect Group leaders have noticed in them that I think is beneficial for all of us as we are on this journey of becoming like Christ. We're going to be in the book of Esther this morning. Now, the book of Esther has 10 chapters, and obviously uh, time will not allow for us to read through all 10 chapters. And so I'm going to just take our first few minutes together to just summarize basically the story 
of Esther, and then we'll key in on a few parts that I think are really relevant to us this morning. The book of Esther has four main players in it. There's King Xerxes. Your uh, translation of the Bible may have uh, King Ahasuerus in there. Ahasuerus is Hebrew. Xerxes is Greek. Same person, okay? So King Xerxes, um, Haman. There's a guy named Haman in the book. Uh, Mordecai, and then a lady named Esther. The year is around 483 B.C. The Jewish people have been in exile at this point out of Israel for almost 100 years. Now, as a reminder, God had driven them into exile because of their idolatry and because of their stubbornness, and they'd been captured by a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom had eventually was conquered by King Darius of Persia, And when King Darius died, King Xerxes took over, and so he inherited all of these Jewish refugees. And in Esther 1, we we see really quick-like that King Xerxes is proud of his things. He loves to throw a party, and the Bible in in Esther 1 is, is pretty explicit here at these parties. And in Esther 1, we read that this guy is just plastered, right? He is stone cold drunk in Esther 1. And he is throwing this huge party uh, for all of his royal friends. And he orders his beautiful queen, her name is Vashti, he orders her to come in. And verse 11 tells us that he wants her to come in with her crown on her head so that all the drunk royalty guys could gaze on her beauty. Now, some scholars are a little divided on what this actually means. Some say it means that he just wanted her to come out unveiled, which uh, in in Persia was scandalous in itself. Other scholars say that he wanted her to come out wearing nothing but her royal crown. Kind of envision that like a little Ed Sheeran playing in the background. Like, that part's not in the Bible. I made that up in my mind. Um, But anyway, whatever it was, she just flat said no, which... You know, good for her, right? But this embarrasses the king in front of his buddies. And so he goes back into his bedroom and he begins to, to sulk. And one of his wise men comes in and he says, hey, bro, you, you got to fix this. Like, you got to do something, right? Not just for your sake, but for the sake of, of all men everywhere. You've got to make an example out of Vashti. And then one of, the, one of the funniest verses in the book of Esther is found in verse 18 in chapter 1 where it says, um, before the, one of these wise men says this, before the day is out, wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did, and then they will start treating their husband, husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt or anger. In essence, he's like, hey, King Xerxes, you got to take one for the team, man. you got to have to get rid of Vashti, and, and you need to banish her from the kingdom. And so that's what he does to set an example. But that leaves a problem. He needs a new queen. And so what he does is he starts looking for a replacement queen. And so he uh, sets out this contest that's eerily similar to The Bachelor that we watch on TV, right? Kind of is, is like that. So there's this Jewish girl named Esther, and she enters the contest. And, and Esther, she's a little orphan girl. And the one thing that she had going for her was that she was apparently a very, very beautiful woman, right? Right? 
One, I guess, flaw of myself, I don't know if this is a bad thing or a good thing, but it backfired last week. Last, last week was Mother's Day, and you know how kids at school, they make cards for their mothers, right? And so um, my youngest son, he brings April, her Mother's Day card, last, uh, last Sunday morning, and she opens it up. And I have a bad habit. I, I think my wife is beautiful, right? And so I have this bad habit of telling her, that I think she's hot, right? Like when she's, she walks by, I'm like, yeah, you look hot, whatever. Okay, so sue me. That's the worst thing I've got, right? But I tell her she's hot. Well, apparently my kids have picked up on this because April opens up her Mother's Day card and it says, Happy Mother's Day, and there's a drawing of her and out beside it it says, Oh, she hot. <laughs> no joke, right? I was like, Bro, I think there's a rule about this. You can't call your mom hot. Like, it's weird, right? But nonetheless, like, I, I feel like that's, that's the situation here. Matter of fact, Esther 2, verse 7 says that she is beautiful and lovely. So here's how the contest works. These ladies, they enter into the king's harem, and they were given the choice of whatever, clothing, jewelry, or perfume that they preferred, And then they would enter into the king's private room and they would sleep with the king that night. And then the next night, the king would see another finalist and then after a few months, he would decide who he wanted. It it was a very degrading and disgusting contest. So it comes time for Esther's turn and we are told in chapter two, verse 15, that she wins the contest, hands down. The king loved her the best. So this little Jewish refugee orphan girl becomes the queen of Persia. Now, I want to pause real quick to make sure you realize what has just happened because if you have grown up in church, chances are you have heard Esther being referred to as a woman of virtue, and in some ways she will become that. But let's be real honest, she didn't start off that way. She had a pretty rough start. You know, she, she enters a sex contest to get married to a pagan king. And now scholars debate whether or not she actually had any choice in the matter, but one thing is clear, she went along with it. And in order to win the contest, she concealed the fact that she was Jewish, which also meant that she was silent about her belief in the God of Israel. And this is not how God's people were supposed to do things. God's people were to be unashamed of him. And so she is going along with a very immoral system and being silent about her belief in God. So let's get back to the story real quick. After she becomes queen, a guy named Haman shows up. And Haman is essentially uh, like the, the prime minister of Persia. And he decides that Jews are a problem. And so he comes up with a plan to eliminate them all to where on a certain day, every Jewish person is just gonna be killed. So Haman presents this plan to King Xerxes, and King Xerxes kind of has this hands-off approach to governing, and so he doesn't really pay attention and just says, hey, go ahead, do, what, do your thing, right? Well, Esther's uncle is a Jewish man, and, and he, his name is Mordecai, and he works right outside of the palace, and he catches wind of this plot, and so he immediately sends a message to Esther that says, hey, you've got to do something about this. Like They're going to destroy us all. And Esther basically sends a message to him and says, you know, Uncle Mordecai, like, I, I, what, what can I do? Like, you remember how Xerxes responds to women disagreeing with him in public. Like, you remember what he did to Vashti. You know, imagine what he would do if I had the audacity to confront him and tell him that he's making a bad government decision. Like, he would kill me. 
And Mordecai's response is found in chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. And it is timeless and, and arguably one of the most famous verses in all of the Old Testament. When Mordecai says this, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace that you will escape this when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He is suggesting that she go before the king and confront him. Now, Persian law said that anybody that came before the king uninvited could be killed especially a woman coming in to tell him that he's making a mistake, like this was a death wish. But Mordecai has confidence that God will accomplish his purposes. And, and, and listen, church, God's sovereignty is never an excuse for inactivity. Quite the contrary, actually. God's sovereignty is what empowers us to do bold and audacious and crazy things for him. And so the short version of the rest of the story is that uh, Esther does it. And God uses Esther's bravery to save Israel. And the king, he changes his mind and Haman's plan backfires and he actually ends up being hanged on his own gallows and the Jews are saved. But what I find interesting is that I think in this story that we can see four characteristics that are not only prevalent in the story of Esther, but they're also very prevalent with this class that's in front of us today. That I believe if all of us could learn from them and in place in our lives, that it would help us on this journey of becoming like Christ. So if you have an insert, I'm going to give you four things real quick that the Hillcrest class of 2018 can teach us so you can follow along there. The first thing is this, diversity. This class can teach us about diversity. Within this class that's graduating, there are right about eight to nine different high schools that are represented. Some here, some at our Spanish Trail campus. What's cool about this is that they actually get along. I mean, they, they like each other. They spend time together. They, they do things, right? They represent different schools, yet their common bond of Jesus unifies them together. And this sets a wonderful example for every other student in our ministry and for the kids who are seeing them model this that are in our, in our kids' ministry. One of the huge blessings that we have in our student ministry is that we, our student ministry is comprised of approximately 17 different schools. And they get to look up to these guys and see, hey, you know what, we might come from different schools and, and, and be associated with different people during the day, but we are unified in Jesus. And, and they see that, that wonderful example. And, and we adults, listen, we could learn a lot from them. Last year, we... Um, we tried to uh, host several local high school football teams, and we were going to have them come in one Sunday, and, and there was literally no strings attached. Come in, we just wanted them to come to church, and then we were going to feed them all lunch, pray over them, and send them on their way. Now, this is a multitude of teams. I'm not picking on one. But every school, with the exception of one, one had a prior commitment, but every school came back, and you know what the response was? We don't know if that's a good idea because 
you know, our players don't like one another and the fans don't like one another, and so that would probably cause a lot of friction. Isn't that heartbreaking? Isn't that sad? That people feel like they can't even come to church because of the friction between teams. Let me tell you something. These, these students on these teams have to learn that from someone. Diversity is so important, and I am so thankful that God is not bound by differences. And we see this beauty, uh, this reality with this class, but we also see it with, with Esther. You know, from the very start, we are introduced to Esther. We see diversity in her story. Here, here's what we know. She was an orphan. She hid her faith. She hid her nationality. She was a refugee. She was also wrong in that she was team Yanny. Clearly, it's team Laurel. Clearly. But God still used her. And listen, I want you to look around this room because here's the deal. Clearly, when we look around this room, we can see that God is in favor of diversity. But it goes much deeper than that. Diversity is biblically mandated. We read that in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. That word all gives us great insight to the fact that Jesus is a big fan of all people, not just the ones that look like us. And this command means that we are to reach across ethnicities and make disciples. We are not simply ambassadors to people within our own cultures. We are cross-cultural ambassadors. And as Christians, we are charged to live Christ-like lives. Unity stems from a life where Jesus is the center. And when we model diversity, we model unity. And the beauty and power of praise that comes from unity in diversity is greater than that which comes from unity alone. Psalm 96, verses 3 and 4 says this, Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing thing he does. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. The extraordinary greatness of the praise that the Lord should receive is the ground and motivation of our mission to the nations. John Piper says it this way, the beauty and power of praise that will come to the Lord from the diversity of the nations are greater than the beauty and power that would come to him if the chorus of the redeemed were culturally uniform. You know, you can use this wonderful choir up here every week as an illustration of this, right? We would much prefer to listen to a choir that sings uh, in, in parts where you can hear the depth of the beauty versus everyone just kind of singing in unison, right? And unity in diversity is more beautiful and more powerful than the unity of uniformity and God's glory grows more with more diverse leaders. Esther did not allow her diverse background to hinder her. And God had a master plan that included using her background 
to display his glory and to bring unity to the Jews in Persia. And I am thankful for the diversity we see in Esther's story. And I'm also thankful for our graduating class who shows us all how to be distinctively different, yet very unified. Diversity. The second thing that this class can teach us is about commitment. Now, for me and our student ministry team, this one is a little more personal. When our team was put together about a year and a half ago, you guys had just started your junior year. And we talked about this a little bit last night. The majority of your time in student ministry was completed at that point. Yet you guys remain committed. And, and from myself and our entire team, we want to say thank you to you guys for, for doing that. And, and thank you for the privilege, and I mean this, of allowing us into your lives. You know, and, and I want to also thank the parents. I want to thank the parents of these graduates for encouraging them along the way. You know, placing your relationship with Jesus and putting that as a priority and staying connected to the church will be pivotal for your success in the future. And it'll be pivotal for all of our success in the future. And this is especially important in our day where unfortunately, for some families, church involvement has fallen from this, you know, top priority, non-negotiable category into the extracurricular category. Staying committed is a big deal. You know, in, in all my years of student ministry, and I know this happens across all forms of ministry, but I, I'm just going to speak right here in student ministry. Occasionally, I will have students or parents who will uh, come up to me and they will say something like, well, I, I, I just don't feel connected. Or my, my, my child doesn't feel connected. They don't have any, any friends. Nobody talks to me. Which, to which my blanket response back to them is, well, what are you doing to feel connected? Like, what are you doing to develop relationships? You see, gathering together as believers at church is not centered on us and what we get out of it at all. It's about being faithfully committed to gathering corporately where God has divinely appointed and led you to give him glory and serve the church. Giving is always greater than getting. Always. And dads and moms, this one, this one is on you. Because your children shouldn't be making decisions of this magnitude in your home. Decisions about where we will attend church and if we will faithfully go every week, right? God has not given them that role. He has given you that role. And so parents, I challenge you to pray about this as the leaders in your home. And when you feel like God has placed you somewhere, you dig your heels in and you plant until he moves, tells you to move. You see, Mordecai, he knew his role, and his level of commitment is clearly laid out in Esther 3 when, uh, when, he, when it says in verse 2, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. So it begs the question, why did Mordecai 
refused to bow down to Haman. I mean, even if he couldn't respect Haman, he could at least respect the office and therefore, uh, you know, respect the king who gave Haman the office, right? Well, the problem was that Haman was an Amalekite. And, and the Amalekites were the avowed, uh, avowed enemies of the Jews. Mordecai remembered Exodus 17, 16 that says, They have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman was not a, a personal issue, really, with a proud and difficult man. It was a declaration that he was on God's side in the struggle between uh, the Jews and the Amalekites. Now, Mordecai, let's be really clear, he was not a perfect man. You know, remember, he was the one who actually encouraged Esther to lie about her faith. But we can at least admit that we can admire his courage to stand to Haman and his commitment to God. Likewise, nobody in this room is perfect. Every one of us are flawed. And that's why it is so important for us to cement our commitment level to the church to be dependent on God, not the people in this room. You know, some of you here today, you were involved, involved in the church, but you are not fully committed. There's, there's a difference. Anybody in here eat, have, eat, eat eggs and bacon this morning for breakfast? Anybody? There's one, nobody eats eggs and bacon in this church. There's one person in the first service, okay? Eggs and bacon, and either that or you just don't want to raise your hand because you know I'm gonna call you out. Listen, I love eggs and bacon. It's a great breakfast. Here's the deal. The chicken is involved in that scenario. The pig is committed, right? There's a difference between being involved and committed. The chicken, you know, he helped out. The pig went all in, Right? And if we are going to show Jesus to the world, we have to stop focusing so much on one another. And we have got to shift our focus to the one who will never leave nor forsake. That's why Hebrews 10 says it this way, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. And let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And here it is. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Simply put, guys, like, we need one another. We need each other. Be committed. I'm thankful for these graduates showing and teaching us how to be committed. The third thing this class can teach us is, is to be purposeful. Be purposeful. You know, the, the vast majority of this class already know what God has called them to do and have some sort of plan in place to achieve that. And, and I shared this with the students. At, we had a graduate dinner last night, and I shared with them the importance of chasing after the infinitely more that we read about in Ephesians 3. You know, this world will tell these students to go to college and try to achieve three things. It will tell them to make good grades, which we talked about last night. That's, that's a good thing, right? We want to make good grades. Like God expects excellence, so that's a thing, right? But make good grades to build a great resume. And then the third thing is to sell yourself to the highest bidder, right? 
began then, and then, right after that, began putting money into retirement. Which is a little weird to me that you would be challenged to spend four plus years focusing on getting a job that you immediately began preparing to retire from. Right? So I challenged them to chase after the infinitely more. To go to college and to find your talent and to find your passion. And when you combine your talent and your, and your passion, you land in your element and you find your purpose. And then you find a job from which you never really want to retire from. John Gardner said it this way, the best kept secret in America today is that people would rather work hard for something they believe in than enjoy a life of pampered idleness. And I believe that we can see this infinitely more type of, uh, of life in Esther's story as well. We read, uh, we read the verse uh, earlier when Mordecai is convincing Esther to conf- confront King Xerxes and she's hesitant. And then Mordecai says to her in, in Esther 4, 14, when he says, If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. And who knows if perhaps you were made queen... For just such a time as this. Mordecai was absolutely right. God had a bigger plan. And he had placed Esther in the palace to be queen. For such a time as this. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing in your palace? How are you doing in your palace? Did you know that 13 out of the 14 times that Esther is referred to as Queen Esther happens after this point in the text? 13 out of 14 times. In other words, it was this moment in Esther's life that truly made her a queen. She became a great person not by trying to become a great person but by yielding her talents and positions for others. You see, greatness in God's kingdom is never found by trying to be great, but by offering your life for others. And you or I might never have a book of the Bible named after us, but we will have an eternal reward in the form of people in heaven whose lives are saved because you allowed yourself to be used by God. Here's the point. Esther, like Esther, you are at a place sovereignly appointed by God right now. And lives are at stake all around you. All around you. You have to act. I mean, who knows? But you may have come into the kingdom for just such a time as this. Be purposeful with your life. The fourth thing that this, uh, the, this Hillcrest class of 2018 can teach us is about humility. It teaches about humility. This class is full of overachievers. They're full of overachievers. They strive for excellence. 
Within this class, there are students who have received numerous scholarships. There's presidential scholarships and there's athletic scholarships, along with some students who um, are within a year of already receiving an associate's degree due to dual enrollment. But here's the thing. You would never know it. You would never know it because they are all very humble. They don't feel the need to tell everyone how smart they are, how excellent they are. And this is a trait that I think will take these students a long way in life and will also take us a long way in life if we can learn this. And I know that because Proverbs 22.4 says that. It says, true humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. You know, I've heard it, I've heard it said that pride is about my glory. Humility is about God's glory. And again, this is something that we see clearly in the life of Esther. Because Esther's response to Mordecai's for such a time as this speech is documented next in verse 15 and 16 when it says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the, Jew, all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. And if I must die... I must die. You know, from a, from a human point of view here, everything was against Esther at this moment, right? The law was against her because nobody was allowed to interrupt the king. The government was against her um, for Haman's decree said that she was to be slain. Uh, her gender was against her because clearly the king's attitude towards women was worse than chauvinistic. The officers were against her because they did only those things that made themselves look good to Haman. Yet, she trusted. And she was willing to humble herself and step out of her role as queen, even if it meant death. And humility is a hard pill to swallow sometimes because we are a proud people and we are surrounded by that all the time of look at me, look at me, look at me. We have to forcefully make ourselves look to the needs of others and promote humility. It reminds me of a story of a pastor who was preaching one Sunday morning and after his message he was out at the door greeting people as they were leaving the church and a sweet little elderly lady comes by and, and she says, you know, Pastor, that was such a great message. Great, had a great morning. And being super pastorly, he then says, well, thank you, but, but don't thank me, thank God. And she pats him on the shoulder and she says, well, honey, it wasn't that good, right? <laughs> Listen, if we are going to be about God's work, we have to be people of humility. Jesus is the standard bearer here. You can't show more humility than what Jesus did for us by coming into this world to die in our place. And if we are going to be serious about following him, we must remain humble. A.W. Tozer once said, God is looking for men in whose hands his glory is safe. Diversity Commitment, purpose, humility. I want to thank this class for teaching us so much. We are 
extremely proud of, of you guys. And as we get ready to close things up this morning, I wonder where you find yourself in all of this. You know, Esther's story shows you how to act with integrity and courage at a defining moment of faith. The irony is, is that when it comes to God working his plans, we don't actually, um, we don't usually expect God to use Esther's, Right? Like we expect God to use someone uh, like Esther's uncle Mordecai, right? The Mordecais of the world are the kind of people you think of as kind of regular church goers. They are sincere in their faith. They are good people. They haven't been involved in any major scandals. They have pretty tame testimonies, right? The, the worst thing they've done in life is speed or uh, you know, forget to recycle, right? They're, they're those type of people. I mean, of course, those are the ones that God would use, right? But not the Esters. Not the Esters. Those, the Esters, you know, those are the people whose lives are filled with shame and regret and weakness. And maybe, like Esther, they've been literal victims of someone else's manipulation. Or maybe they look back and see that they have not always acted with courage and faith when they should have. You know, Esthers tend to have a hard time believing that God can use someone with their kind of past. But if you consider yourself an Esther, you need to see that God's plan is wildly purposeful and desires the belief, the willingness, and the obedience of all men. Because listen, God did use Mordecai. But Mordecai couldn't save Israel alone. He needed Esther. He needed Esther. You see, the rest of this story is that shortly after this, two guys named Nehemiah and Ezra lead these Jews back to Israel. And after a few generations, another Jewish girl, a descendant of one of these people that Esther saved, is visited by an angel and told that she is pregnant with the Messiah. Esther didn't get off to a great start in life. But in her defining moment, she committed herself to God's plan and it changed the course of history. It is never too late for you to begin the journey of faith. Salvation is all about new beginnings. And God is ready to start a new beginning with you. And yes, others may have mistreated you. And you may have your share of mistakes. But I want to challenge you this morning to quit looking back. Quit looking back. God can use you, and he is ready to start a new thing in you if you are willing to put your yes on the table.